This is Breaking Silos, and I'm Asao Inouye. And I'm Shane Wood, and we're scholars and teachers in rhetoric and composition looking to engage in conversations outside our field. And this is a podcast that engages in deep discussions about guest scholarship and the ways that scholarship may teach or assess language and communication in college classroom. Our goal is to draw on a range of perspectives that might inform how we approach teaching and writing, what we can learn from others as a field. Well, welcome to the next episode um, of our podcast. And uh, I wanna introduce our guest today, Frank B. Wilderson III, who is Chancellor Professor at UC Irvine, where he teaches in the African-American Studies Department and the Culture and Theory Doctoral Program. During the apartheid era, he spent five and a half years in South Africa, where he was one of two Americans to hold elected office in the African National Conference. Uh, Congress, excuse me, and was a cadre in the underground. His books include Incognito, a memoir of exile and apartheid, winner of the American Book Award, the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Legacy Award, and a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship. Red, White, and Black, Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonisms, and Afro-Pessimism, which was a long-listed for the National Book Award. Yes, and that is the uh, the book that we're going to be talking about in, in this episode, Frank's book, Afro-Pessimism, which was published by Live Right Publishing in 2020. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm doing pretty good, um, pretty well. Uh, and I must say that, you know, Toni Morrison once said um, that you sh one should write the book that one wants to read. And uh, what I think about this podcast is uh, I'm participating in the, in the kind of podcast that I've always wanted to listen to. Uh, <laughs> and what do I mean by that? What I mean is that uh, I guess since about 1988, I've been teaching uh, cre creative writing, uh, fiction writing workshops first at the, the Loft uh, Literary uh, Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is the largest <clears throat> school to study uh, creative writing outside of an accredited uh, university. And um, then later, of course, in South Africa. And I've been teaching uh, what's called, you know, as you know, in the humanities, the writing course. Uh, sometimes it's the it's the lower division writing course uh, here. In, we call it 1A, 1B, or the, and then the upper division writing course which is a uh, theme or, or discipline centered, but has these kind of uh, rubrics of, of um, academic writing that one must be uh, attentive to. So, so it's, it's kind of funny that we're talk, I'm talking with you about that because this is the thing. Uh, it, there are other people who teach the upper division writing course, African-American studies, but there's no one who always teaches it but me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we always uh, complain in the field of writing studies that that the best, most um, uh, equipped folks to teach, the full professors, the ones with lots of experience and, and others, are usually the ones not able to teach because of other, you know, uh, engagements or other things that they have to teach, like graduate courses and such. Uh, and so it's nice to see that you're teaching that and someone who's well equipped for, for, for that class. So we, we feel that I think that's a, a wonderful thing in, in your context. 
Yeah, I, I mean, most people look at it as a service course, mm -hmm. the way that you would look at uh, ha having to teach, um, uh, you know, the, the upper division courses in our at UCI are three numbers, uh, 100 something. The, the very much introductory courses are like three zero and four zero and so these these three zero and four zero courses have 80 to 300 people in them yeah, yeah, yeah. and um and so those courses and the upper division writing course are considered to be service courses that that are like kind of lunch bucket work however uh i hope i don't jinx myself by saying <laughs> this uh i have never taught the double digits in, in a lot of auditoriums <laughs> <laughs> and, and I and I hope I hope to retire before I do. And part of the part of the reason I've gotten away with it is you know like Brer Rabbit who says oh throw me back don't throw me back in the briar patch you know which is exactly where he wants to go. Uh, I have kind of agreed that I will always step in every year and teach um, the 162 W upper division uh, course. Now it's getting less fun than it was 18 years ago. And that's, and that's because, because I'm not at Stanford, I'm not at USC. What I mean by that is I'm not at a private school where they recognize that this course should have, should cap at 15 people. Oh. And they're now, they, they want to cap it at 25. And it's really almost impossible to do that kind of, of, of work on people's writing when you cap it at 25. I've, I've tried to cap it at 22 and that's still, uh, very, very difficult, but that's the only complaint that I have about it. Yeah, I think that's the that's also a common complaint because yeah, you're right. It's so such important labor intensive work uh, that it's hard to do it with uh, even numbers that seem quite you know manageable by for folks like say in the sciences who are teaching larger ones on on a regular basis. But 25 seems like a dream probably to many physicists and, and chemists, <laughs> but oh, wow. but to, but the humanities, right, uh, folks, and, and so uh, 25 sounds like ah, that's on the upper limit of too many students for a writing intensive class. Well, let's get to um, let's get to the first question. I'm excited to talk uh, to you about your book. It is. Really, um, uh, I have to say, right, right as I enter this first question, that when I I was so glued to this book, um, I couldn't stop reading it. I couldn't stop rereading it out loud. It was so good in every possible way you can imagine for me. So I just want to say, like, I'm a little fanboying a little bit here. So I apologize, Frank. <laughs> so, so yeah. <laughs> so early in the book, you explain that Afro pessimism is quote black people at their best. You also state in the same passage that there are no Blacks in the world and there is no world without Blacks. You continue, quote, the violence perpetrated against us is not a form of discrimination. It is a necessary violence, a health tonic for everyone who is not Black, an ensemble of sadistic rituals and captivity that could only happen to people who are not Black if they broke this or that law, end quote. How might a writing teacher put these ideas together in order to either understand Afro-pessimism um, or what that the implication of it might be as a writing teacher or for their students? That's a great question. And I think we'll uh, kind of come back to it and other aspects of the other questions that you have. I, I, I'm not sure I can answer it in toto right now uh, because some of your other questions are really provocative, I'm sure. Uh, 
there's a problem with the structure of narrative, which I talk about in the book. And, and the book is the book is meant. To, it's a New York publisher, Norton, uh, Norton slash Liverite, which uh, requires that the scale of abstraction, if it's going to be at a high scale of abstraction like critical theory, it actually has to uh, oscillate between that scale of abstraction and a kind of scale of abstraction that a junior in college could read without having to pick up a thesaurus. So that's that's the benchmark, you know? And um, so what I tried to do was to try to explain how Afro-pessimism is a meta theory. It is a, it is a theory about theory. Um, in other words, uh, meta, meta data, for example, would be people who do um, research on the theory of computer programming. They're not actually programming computers, but they are talking about the ensemble of questions, uh, the nature of the, of the uh, digital intervention, uh, what types of software do, what types of things. And so what Afro-pessimism is trying to do is trying to say that the, um, the, the, the urtexts, uh, the functional texts that, that, that ground critical theory in general and cultural studies in particular in particular have are in need of a critique and those are texts would be um, the texts of marxism of political economy and the texts of psychoanalysis even if the people who are doing cultural studies uh haven't read much marx or haven't read much much uh, psychoanalysis one of the things that we know is that the new uh when I say new, since 1968, the way of thinking about the world has been predicated on what does it mean to suffer based upon how that question is asked and, and answered by Marx and how that question is asked and answered by Freud and Lacan. And then what it means to suffer then becomes the basis of thinking about writing, thinking about politics, thinking about colonialism, and what Afro-pessimism has done, it, it hasn't, it hasn't um, tried to, um, um, let me back up a minute. What Afro-pessimism has done has been to say that these ways of thinking about the universal nature of suffering are really, really good, but they are not extensive enough for thinking through the nature of black suffering. And that's that's the that's the, the basis there. And what and the, one of the ways that we get to that is by getting back to some of the the quotes that you just read from from my book, a, a book which tried to bring a reason a reasonably college educated lay person into this really dense theory by way of anecdote stories and then spliced with theoretical interventions as as well. So in the hopes that that person will get to the glossary, sorry, get to the, the, the notes and look at some of the other people who are writing much more, um, uh, much more remotely, shall I say, about these topics and then read the theory, the theory my, my second book and other people's books. So the basic thing is that um, if there's a classroom and there are no blacks in it, uh, then the word we could be used. But once um, once the once the classroom has one, two, three, four, however many black students, then the word we is is corrupted 
because the structure of violence that is at the base of suffering for non-Blacks is paradigmatically irreconcilable with the structure of suffering that, that is at the, the, the violence at the foundation of, of anti-Blackness. So the first thing that happens is that there becomes a kind of, a, um, the teacher has to deal with, and I don't mean deal with this by uh, Black uh, students like John or Joe calling on John and Joe to explain the black situation every time this comes up, you know, because, you know, when I, when I, when I kind of did that kind of thing as a TA at UC Berkeley, you know, I, I had uh, black students come into uh, what, uh, that was before we were unionized as TAs, come into what um, euphemistically could be referred to as my office, uh, meaning uh, <laughs> Starbucks. Uh, <laughs> There's the economics of play, right? <laughs> exactly. uh, the black students come to my office and say, you know, we're we're in total agreement with everything that's being said, and this explains our condition in a way that that it hasn't been explained to us before. However, I don't feel comfortable um, going through all this with all the eyes of the other people and, the, and other students looking at me, you know. Um, so uh, at the end of the book, I actually talk about that. I, I, say I had to find a different way of, of teaching this material. But nonetheless, what the teacher needs to be aware of, if he, she, or they agree with this, and if he, she, or they do not agree with this, they have to be aware of that there is a, a theoretical intervention out in the world that says that there's a structural antagonism between the black students in this class and everyone else, and 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 that there is a a structural conflict uh, between uh, Native people, uh, um, uh, Latinx, and, and 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 Asian people, and white people, and white women, and white men, and that the nature of conflict and antagonism are are so are so irreconcilable that we can't bring them together, and so we have to have a class that in some way addresses the structure of suffering of the black students as well. Now, whether you want to bring all the students into that, which I do, you know, or, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how to do that, but I can say that one of the reasons why I have such a low salary, um, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and why, why, why I say this is because this, there's this interview with me from diacritics that's going to come out with, from diacritics that, that I did with a um, Spanish intellectual in, in England. And uh, I was just reading the proofs the other day, and it was just such hubris at low places, you know. <laughs> at, at, at one point I say, you know, I'm one of the highest paid professors in the humanities, and, and with speaking visa, I make $196,000. And then I, that went off. I had to realize that that's 30% less than what I'd be making doing this job at at Stanford or or US or, or USC, you know. But it, that always a segue is to say that, you know, I was offered this job at Stanford and there were kind of uh reasons to take it and reasons not to take it. And the reasons not to take it overwhelmed the reasons to take it, which is why I'm now a civil servant working for the state instead of making buku bucks. And the, and at, because at the end of my job talk, you know, my job talk uh, had a lot to do with the teaching of culture, cultural studies, and um, and my answer to to to, to your question 
um, which is that cultural studies has uh, an insufficiently comparative analysis of the races that it deals with. Insufficiently comparative. It tries to bring everyone into the under the rubric of a post-colonial theory. And and so I was I was going through how um, there cannot be a prior moment to black suffering because blackness comes out of it's a, it's a it's a it's a product of the arab slave trade and it over to, to to the portuguese there were no blacks before slavery there were maasai buganda lua kikiyu you know but they were not black there were no black people before slavery slave, just as though there were no workers prior to capitalism. It's a position and a paradigm, not a cultural uh, identity, which is a highly controversial statement, in, even in Black studies. But this guy, uh, this professor from Stanford in the audience uh, goes through all the things that I was talking about in the Q&A. And he says to me, uh, do you know why we call Stanford the bubble? Or do you know why we called it the bubble or the farm? I did know because I was a, you know, I just completed my PhD at UC Berkeley and there's a heavy rivalry. Uh, I pretended like I did. I said, no, enlighten me. <laughs> you know, with a very calmly asshole, but I didn't say that. <laughs> and he says, we call it the bubble or the farm because there is a kind of a glass dome of, of issues that, 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 that protect our students from certain things. In other words, our students, in, in our, in, especially in our, in our writing classes and our humanities classes, our social studies class, social sciences classes, have a very hard time taking in, um, uh, taking in uh, interventions which, which say that there's large scale suffering in the, and discrimination in the world. You seem to be suggesting that the world is is uh, that the genome of world creation is large scale black suffering and anti black violence. I'm not sure that would go over much, given the the temperament of the students that we have here in the bubble or the farm, you know. And then he says, so so how would you deal with that uh, in an upper division writing course, you know? And so what's what's um, amazing to me is. Uh, that there are places where you could get paid 10 to 20 percent more sometimes 30 percent more than what i make here and you actually can can uh, quarantine the space <laughs> <laughs> and call yourselves delivering a liberal arts education you know <laughs> there um, may be a correlation between those two things right yeah exactly. <laughs> in the world <laughs> yeah well let me let me ask you something real quick since you were uh talking you got me thinking about um the uh, so the, I'm thinking about the writing classroom, uh, the say the first year writing classroom, um, yeah. and uh, or or maybe even a cultural studies classroom where there's a lot of writing happening. But let's I'm just thinking. But the first year writing class is what's on my mind. I'm wondering about uh, the what would you say the the violence or the oppression, whatever the term uh, you think is most appropriate here, um, is. Uh, say the the black violence that's happening in the class in that classroom that would be important for any teacher, perhaps most especially the whitely or white teacher who is um, at the front of the classroom. The teacher um, needs to know and 
what might be that pedagogical intervention or what might be the change in orientation that they might have or might consider? Well, I would say get over yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come back to what I mean by that, you know, and uh, and then uh, choose your primary texts uh, in, in a way that uh, do violence to your own sense of being. Um, you know, that's, you know, when I used to teach creative writing, I, I haven't done that for, uh, well, no, no, I have, last spring, okay. I, I say the, the goal here is to, you know, stand in the middle of the room, pour gasoline on yourself and, and light a match. Now, my 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 friend, the, the, the uh, Japanese-American sensei, memoirist and novelist, David Mora, puts a, a little more um, uh, delicately than that. And he says, um, try to go to the place in your writing that you know, if it were to be read, would embarrass the hell out of you, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, one of the things that that um, not just writing teachers bring as a kind of 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 baggage that is really baggage that needs to be jettisoned, and it's the same with it's 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 basically this thing across the board in in the arts as well as in writing, is the notion of redemption. And um, and so if you fundamentally believe in redemption as a, you know, then what's going to happen is you're going to uh, impose that belief on the writing or artistic work of the students in your class for whom redemption can only come about at their expense. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm what I'm trying what I'm trying to say, no blacks in the world, uh, black people at their best, you know, coming from your first question here, is that um, one of the things that that is very hard to to to, to face is that the the there are, there are two narrative arcs in 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 writing. One is the narrative arc of of bourgeois literature, which most people teach. And that is based upon, uh, at first, there was equilibrium, then there is disequilibrium or, or, or conflict. And then we finally get to the denouement, which is equilibrium restored. And so what the Marxists have done is they've made a, they've made a, a literary um, class-based intervention into the arc at the level of content. They're saying, instead of thinking of this narrative arc as an arc of moral judgment, I'll repeat that. Instead of thinking of this narrative arc as an arc of moral judgment, let's think of it as an arc of ethical assessment. So what they do is, is at the at the in the first moment of of uh, of writing, then that would not be the um, the nuclear family, the the white couple, the heteronormative couple, who who are then living in the plenitude of some kind of, of um, safety and stability. And then that plenitude at, at the moment of disequilibrium is blown apart. And that way you get in denouement is a kind of, normally through the, the heteronormative image of the white child, uh, the, 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 the re-instantiation of uh, filial morality, heteronormative filial morality. And so what the Marxists say is, let's change the kaleidoscope a little bit and have uh, the first moment of plenitude being a paradigmatic people, 
not some individuals based upon their moral plenitude, but a paradigmatic people based upon their ethical plenitude. And their ethical plenitude was once upon a time, there were Palestinians prior to Israel. Once upon a time, there were Native Americans prior to Columbus and the genocide. And then we move from a story about individuals and their morality to a story about oppressed categories of people and their and the unethical intervention of genocide and colonialism, for example, or the unethical intervention of capitalism, and then to the denouement, which is the dream of redemption for a class, for a race, for a gender. Now, when I said in the beginning, get over yourself, I was being a little flippant here, because what I mean is that you have to actually suspend your belief in both arcs to address what's happening with black students. There's no arc from plenitude to disequilibrium to the return of plenitude for the black for the black student. And so the question is, are you going to help this person use narrative for to 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 get deeper into who they are, knowing that the ideological structure of narrative, before you actually pour any content to it, the ideological structure is anti-Black because it assumes that all people can be redeemed in some way. Are you going to do that? Or are you going to force the Black students into a kind of structural adjustment where they have to pretend that they have the same condition and problems that everyone else that can be solved through this um, progression to a return of some kind. And and do you think that's an, an individual choice? Do you think that's a pedagogical choice? Like, or is it always indeterminate? Like given whether, for instance, you're teaching at Stanford or you're teaching it somewhere else, or how do you, how does a teacher navigate that? Because I, I see that problem, but I also see it as a problem of um, even to the, down to the level of what English are you going to use? You know, um, yeah. in the to write uh, whether we're talking about fiction or nonfiction, but I'm just thinking about fiction or excuse me, nonfiction, because um, I I can see the same kinds of um, uh, uh, issues uh, and questions arise for the teacher and the students. Don't you, do you think for non nonfiction? Uh, well, the nice thing about a writing class is that you know if you do it right, you don't know what's going to happen. And um, and so there will be all kinds of possibilities and, and eruptions and, and, and ruptures and, and epiphanies. And so I'm actually trying not to be too prescriptive. I will be a little prescriptive right. in a moment, but I'm trying, I was trying not to be too prescriptive. I, I've been a little meta, but, but you want me to come back down to earth. I, I'm going to do that. Or, or, but knowing that this is not necessarily the prescription for everything, right? But, yeah, but that, yeah. That this is, we're just thinking out loud here. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Well, well, the, the, the thing that, that has to happen is that the teacher has to, in some way, make the comfort zone such that um, Black students can speak without fear of censure, uh, without fear of the accusation, you are playing oppression Olympics. Because mm -hmm. the average uh, undergraduate Black student, even the average graduate student, 
isn't really going to have a meta-theoretical perspective on their own paradigmatic uh, position. Most, neither does the working class. I mean, most of the working class in this country are right-wing Trump fascists. So they're, they're not walking into the workplace saying, oh, this is hyper-exploitation. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, the poorer they get, the more they love their guy with the blonde toupee. So I'm go figure. That's, <laughs> you know, that's why you need psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis as, as well. But, but there are several things. One, the choice of texts. Um, uh, my 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 wife Anita Wilkins and I, uh, and and uh, a. Uh, person from the Philippines and a Native American person and uh, an East Indian woman. We're all uh, adjunct professors uh, for the writing course at UC um, Santa Cruz. And what we basically said was that um, these are 400 students divided into about uh, seven different sections. And what we basically at least said was that everyone is reading the same book okay this week it's black week this week uh it's asian week you know this week it's native american week you know everybody reads the same text that's cool but all of these texts are saying that there's something redeemable in the condition of oppression that these people find them in so so in other words we launched a campaign to change the reading material so that you would get in the in the in the Asian section, some poetry from a Filipino poet whose father shot uh, shot um, American GIs in the head during the uprising, you know, as opposed to an Asian immigration text that everyone has to read. Okay, <laughs> for the Black Week, we'd have Asada Shakur's autobiography, you know, uh, as a, as a, as a and and since since you since you you couldn't do it without without James Baldwin, not early James Baldwin, the fire next time, but late James Baldwin, James Baldwin, who is black and old and dying, and shows how much he hates this country, and says in his last book, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, that it is America's job to kill black babies. That's the job of America. Let's have that book, you know. And so once once you actually. When I, when when your your opening question about my quote from my book saying Afro pessimism is black people at their best, once you begin to put on your curriculum uh, and your syllabi, authors who are black as well as what we did at UC Santa Cruz, authors who are, are other races who are unapologetically antagonistic towards their condition of oppression then that opens up space for the students to think and, and write in, their, in, in different ways. I taught a writing course at San Quentin. And um, at the end of the, at the, end of the, the, the you know, Jared Sex and I did this, this creative writing and critical theory every other week. 15, when you have 15 weeks as opposed to 10, you can do that. At the end of the, the course, we were, I, I was basically fired, which meant that we had done a really good job. The warden had sent guards into our classroom with video cameras to videotape our lectures. We had mixed up the room. We would not go on teaching because the, the, all the courses at San Quentin are, um, are, are the seating arrangement 
is a sign. I've got, for your listen, I've got quotation marks in it. So everybody walks into the room. The white prisoners sit in the first two rows, right? Uh, then you have the East Asian prisoners who sit in the next rows. Then you have the, the Native American and the Latinx prisoners who sit in the next rows. And then you have the black prisoners who sit in the, in the next rows. And I refuse to teach until uh, the room mixed it up according to my count by numbers. One, two, three, four, five. Ones go here, twos go there, threes go there, you know. And, you know, one of the prisoners threatened to, threatened to kill me indirectly. He, he threw my poetry uh, selections and my writing assignment on the floor. And he asked me rather rhetorically, did I know what, what he was convicted for, that, that he comes from Marin, which is right across the way. It's in it's mid Marin County. And, I, and there's a horse training thing. And he should be a horse trainer. And I said, oh, that's very nice. And did you steal a horse? Ha ha ha. I'm just joking. He said, no, I, I murdered the owner of the horses. And so he's trying to tell me, uh, fuck you, Jack. I'm not moving, you know. And I basically said to him, here's the deal, buddy. Uh, you want a junior college degree this class is your gateway to it so you guys are going to change positions and mix this room up or i'm just not going to teach i'm not going to physically make you move okay but you have to decide how much this uh junior college degree is worth to you and they did at the very end of the course at the very end of the course and this is what i mean by we the text that we brought in are, are uh, exemplary of the ones i just mentioned to you right which had not been taught in San Quentin. They had been taught texts that suggest that they are in prison because of some kind of moral failing on their part. And we're saying that you are in prison because of an ethical assessment of capitalism, racism, and anti-Blackness, and that it is absolutely necessary for you to be in prison as the raw material of a capitalist machine that is going under, okay? And they then produced a project themselves at the very end of this course. And this project was to interrogate the way in which when you get processed going into prison, you must declare a gang. You not not you have not, not you have a choice. You must declare a gang. I, I, I would have to at, at 67, I would have to declare Bloods or Crips. I know this to be a fact because I have a buddy who went to prison in his 50s. He was he was a, a, a commodities trader and he had to declare a gang. Latinx, he had to declare NorCal or SoCal, white supremacist or neo-Nazi. You know, you have to declare a gang and you have to be bumped with those people. And so they wrote up a, a paper, their final paper based upon our teachings, which said that A, this was unconstitutional and, and ethically wrong. Uh, they sent it to a lawyer. The lawyer took it to court. Through this paper entered into evidence, uh, they actually won the case against the California District of Corrections, and so it became illegal to process people based upon your perceiving them in, as gang structure. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> it's like Andrew Jackson said when the Supreme Court said, stop the trail of tears, you're going to kill three million Indians on the way to Oklahoma. And he said, well, the Supreme Court has made the decision. I would not like to see them enforce it since I run the army. Mm -hmm. But at least that came out of this class. And we and it came out because we 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 heighten the contradictions 
of the antagonisms that exist in the mere seating, and then we heighten the contradictions of the antagonisms that exist in the world even further by the by the um, books that we show, that we had them read, and then we heighten the, the, the contradictions of the antagonism even further by allowing them to write on their their creative writing assignment and their critical theory writing assignment, which they took to court, on anything they want. They had to ask us over three weeks, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes, we're very sure. So all of their short stories, I mean, statistically, you know, not all of them, but so many of their short stories were about how they fantasize killing guards. <laughs> and, and, and can I write this? Yes, you can write anything you want. Of course, that's that's what that's what that's what creative writing is about. Unlocking your fantasy through the book that we were learning from, which was called "Write in the Natural Way" by Gabriel Rico. Now, on the other side, the critical theory side: Why do we have to get processed as gang members when we come to prison? Isn't unconstitutional? They took that to court and they won, and we proved everything in that course, including the fact that law doesn't matter. What matters is the gun. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So much here that I, I, I want to follow up, but, but I'm no shame, but dying to ask his, his, uh, the second question. Yeah, Go ahead, so, Jay. you know, Fr Frank, I, th I think you're, you're touching on some of this and, and I'm thinking of the ways in which Afro pessimism intervenes, uh, in the classroom for writing teachers. And, and particularly, even as you're thinking about curriculum and text and what narratives are brought into the classroom, I think one thing that's happening, at least through your book here is this challenging of, of claims of liberation or, or the stories that are told and shared. So going back to Afro-pessimism, uh, Afro in, in the beginning, you, you write this quote, Afro-pessimism is less of a theory and more of a meta-theory, which you just have kind of unpacked and discussed for us a little bit. <clears throat> you go on to say a critical project that by deploying Blackness as a lens of interpretation interrogates the unspoken assumptive logic of Marxism, postcolonialism, psychoanalysis, and feminism through rigorous theoretical considerations of their properties and assumptive logic, such as their foundations, methods, form, and utility, end quote. And then you go on to say that Afro-pessimism is pessimistic about claims made in theories of, of liberation when they, quote, try to explain Black suffering or when they... Uh, analogize Black suffering with the suffering of other oppressed beings, end quote. And what's interesting to me, I, I paused here, because <clears throat> I think that there's there's several or, or maybe so many writing teachers that that are drawn to these theories of, of Marxism, of postcolonialism, of, of feminism, and that they use these theories to help guide their understanding and approach uh, to, to, to teaching writing. But you're offering this perspective, a different perspective that I, that I think complicates it and says maybe how these theories miss the mark. And I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit more about how Afro-pessimism complicates these theories, how these theories miss the mark, or how these theories cause harm. And then maybe re reflecting on why it's essential for teachers to really reconsider these claims of, of liberation. Well, let me start with the, the, the last part first, and, that, and then I'm going to pause, then you can help me re remind me of your earlier parts. Um, the last thing you said was what, how these teachers, could you read that to me again? Yeah, so I was thinking about um, why it's important for, for writing teachers to, to really reconsider these theories that, that, that claim liberation. 
it's 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 important because um the experience in the world even if it's not the experience of the student is that uh once um a social formation say the algerians a social formation say the palestinians uh you know once a social formation say uh the cuban working class uh once they have achieve liberation, uh, then the actual dynamics, the essential dynamics of suffering for black people don't change. Now, what I mean, now, now I want to say that if I had to, I don't want to cathedralize a, a nation, but if I had to cathedralize a nation in the Western hemisphere, it would be Cuba. You know, I've been there twice. There's a lot to like about Cuba. There's a lot of re repression as as well. But what I'm trying to say is that if you go to the Bahamas, Trinidad, um, Brazil, places in the general area where I've spent some time, and then you go to Cuba, what you're going to see is far less homelessness, far less uh, hunger, um, and a greater sense of of civic participation, even complaining against the government. You know. Uh, and, a, and an analysis of imperialism from people in the streets, garbage men, um, hotel workers. Okay, so that's pretty. That's pretty amazing to me. That's pretty amazing. To, that's pretty amazing to go to a class in Havana of sixth graders who explain to you the nature of of AIDS, why contraceptives are needed. Sixth graders, twelve year olds, uh, the nature of, of American imperialism. You know. But all, but see, all that thing that I'm saying is so wonderful that you will not find in Trinidad, that you will not find in the Bahamas, that you will not find in Jamaica. At the same time, what you have is this sense from Black people in Cuba that um, we are. There's a there's a phrase in in Spanish. I was I forgot it, how you, how it went, but it was like, "Do you have the hair of the dog in you?" Meaning, if you marry my daughter, uh, will that person, that baby look more like a Spaniard or more like a slave? That that question, do, do you have the hair of the dog in you, is fundamental, like a grain of sand is fundamental to a pearl, is fundamental and overdetermines the libidinal space of every country in the world. And so the, the, the teacher has to then be able to say that there are some really important um, modes of struggle, modes of writing, uh, ways of being in the world that have been shown to alleviate suffering in a great, in a great manner. At the same time, what you have is whether it's in Basra, where I've seen interviews for Black people in Basra, or Gaza and the and the West Bank, where I uh, uh, a group that I of Black Lives Matter leaders that I did a workshop for had gone there and seen that, wow, these Gazans who are Black, these Gazans who are on the, are on the West Bank, feel like they're in an anti-Black space, just as the Black Jews do. The only difference is they're getting the hell bombed out of them. They're not the bomby, the bomber, they're the bombies, you know. And so I think that the teacher then has to um, be willing, as I said before, with the int introductions of texts that heighten the contradictions, to, to say maybe the black students are going to get something out of this class that the non-black students aren't going to get, and that's okay. 
why would it why would it not be okay it's not like these kids come to class uh hearing about structural antagonism between them and black people for the first time no you can go to any high school i taught at compton high school there are high schools in in san francisco and all the kids know that if you want real excitement you know you hang black but it's going to come with like some real police violence that you don't want to have you know everybody in this country knows exactly where they should be at night okay <laughs> it's like that old Cheech and Chong joke you know it's, it's nighttime you know at nighttime ain't no time for you to be in this year you know I mean? every so this is not new to the students the, the, the notion that they are sitting side by side in a structural antagonism doesn't mean that they have to start a fist fight in the classroom, but 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 giving the black students space. And one of the ways, just kind of of, of tactically, is uh, group work. Uh, because most black students are not going to speak out in the plenary of a class when these issues come up. Um, you know, I I just came yesterday from. I live in Newport Beach, which is. Um, you know where the devil is mayor uh i actually i actually live in irvine but it's the southwest corner of orange county you know <laughs> and, and i just you know heard the most amazing things from some of these white people um about our culture and all these immigrants coming over you know and 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 saying things that, that are just without censor like there do you know there are ten thousand uh red chinese who are coming up from Panama through Mexico, and they're going to come together with these Muslim extremist groups, and we need a better wall and all this stuff. So what I'm trying to say is that no one comes into the classroom at the age of 18 or older, uh, not understanding these antagonists, not knowing about these antagonists. They might not know how to think about them. The blasphemers are not going to want to talk about them. But in group works with the proper assignments, then what you find is that um, when you have the um, the uh the scribe writing down what the group has done and then the speaker coming back and reporting to plenary you find that the voices of blackness have come up in ways that they're not going to come up necessarily in the first few weeks of plenary the second thing i would say uh shane and before i end this question is that um well i'm just repeating myself the idea of the idea that we're all in this boat together uh should be in some way gotten over and um let me just think here uh there's a you know zizek once tried to explain uh the uh rebellions back in 2005 or somewhere like that in the in the in the get in the ghettos or what they call suburbs of paris um, you know, someone said, why are they burning their own places and just yelling, you know, and screaming at the police and burning cars, not knowing who it is, you know, and he said, you don't, you don't appreciate the nature of phatic communication, P-H-A-T-I-C, phatic communication, which is actually not the same as grammatical communication. Mm -hmm. It may be a cry, a shout, a yell. It's just it, it's it's a it's something from the mouth that that's if it has a message, its only message is, hey, I'm here. Do you see me? Recognize me, you know? And what I'm trying to say is that that's about all that the black student can get out of writing, get out of narrative. And that is a great 
great gift to be able to to just say that as part of your writing and not have to find in your experience the redemptive denouement. Maybe this leads to, uh, maybe there's a connection here to the third question uh, about social death and Orlando Patterson's ideas that you draw on. So let me uh, let me ask that and see if there's some connections we can make. So in your book, you build upon Orlando Patterson's idea ideas in slavery and social death. You explain that, quote, blackness is coterminous with slaveness. Blackness is social death, which is to say that there was never a prior meta moment of plentitude, never equilibrium, never a moment of social life, end quote. Well, you are not trying to speak to writing classrooms in the book, obviously. It does feel like this has important implications to how a writing teacher approaches language or how students must approach the learning of some kind of quote, it was quote, standardized English uh, demanded in a classroom. What do you think blackness as social death means or can mean to a writing classroom, the teaching of writing or the assessment of writing in classroom, in a classroom? Um, and then I might apologize to you first because before we began, I did not <laughs> ask you how to pronounce your first name, which I should have. Asau. Asal. Asal, yeah. Asal. So what, Asal, I want you to do is help me a bit right now with um, kind of lead the witness a little bit. For sure. Because otherwise, I, I think I will, I'll repeat some things that I've said. And, and there's something at the heart of your question that, that, that animates here's, you. Yeah, so here's what I'm thinking about. Blackness as social death sounds or maybe tastes a little bit like a denial of or an erasure of a killing of black English in the English classroom. It says it's not allowed to be there. That's what I'm smelling <laughs> here. Or that I'm saying, this feels like a way to understand how that is not allowed. And in fact, if black English is present, it is, it's, it's graded F. It's not what we want. It's not the critical language. It's not the whatever. Um, and so therefore it's not, this is not the space for that. And then therefore, what that what in my head, what that equates to is if, if this is the proving ground for the next space, whatever that is for the student, it's not um it's not appropriate or valid or okay or or uh, valued in any other space afterwards, because this is the space that is is the entry point for that. So I wonder if 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 there's a way that a writing teacher, I guess, can use the ideas around blackness as social death that's historical as well as social in our moment now as a way to think about, let's just say the assessment of language, rubrics, language outcomes, the, the language that's expected or used in the classroom by the teacher, by the students, or what, what's demanded of them, what's not demanded, uh, knowing that of course, um, that there are expectations outside that classroom that determine what's in that classroom, like what other professors and other people want from those students or expected to learn from that from that classroom. So I think, but just like you said earlier, where where you said we don't, if there's a space for a, a, a black student to be able to have this this um, phatic expression that doesn't need to, this release from being able to have, like, I got to have this denouement where I've got to bring back the equilibrium in the, in the world and let my readers or my audience feel okay. Maybe this is a place to say, 
my future professors, my readers, my my listeners don't get to have that equilibrium. They don't, that's not what this, the, the more important thing is for the black English to be here, for the black English to be expressed. So again, I'm just thinking out loud here, having, thinking about uh, your book and about the connections with Orlando Patterson's book, which made me go get the Patterson book and and read it, not knowing that it was even bigger than your book and thicker. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you that my book, my book was actually uh, cut down by 30,000 words. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was in New York. But my, my first book was 500 pages long. Uh, incognito, and it was done through a small press. But the New York Press is when they, when your contract reads one hundred and ten thousand words, they actually mean that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got thirty thousand words sitting on the floor that you know. Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be a little indirect, um, and then Asal, I want you to, and, and I'll be brief this time. <laughs> but I want you to then come back and tell me what your what your concerns are. I. Uh, so I have a looser way of teaching uh, in my creative writing classes than I do in the upper division writing classes. So, so I, I do have a course. Uh, I'm not sabbatical now, and, and I haven't been to so I can't. There's a course I teach. Uh, uh race and the art of writing yes and and that's a that's a critical theory sorry that's a creative writing course uh where they come up with stories or poems after that and and of course voice is the most important thing there so uh if the voice is um whatever whatever voice is actually central to your imagination and i encourage that and and one of the ways i encourage it's not it's not you know my doing, uh, but it's using the um, the exercises in Gabriel Rico's writing the natural way. Some people call this mind mapping. She she calls it. Um, um, I'm just trying to blank. Anyway, um, clustering. She calls it clustering, clustering, and clustering will will then lead to a trial web shift, which is a sentence that turns the fragmented pictures of the spider web. Of, of circles and words into a first sentence. And that first sentence will, will be true to you and your voice. Mm. It will, it, I guarantee you, it will be true to you and your voice. And so if if your voice is um, is underwritten by, by Black English, then it will come out like that because the, because the clustering process is throwing all the rules of grammar and writing out the window uh, to to put words and small chunks of concepts into a into a kind of rubric on the page that looks more like a painting than a sentence. Okay, so that would be there. Coming over to um, an expository writing class, that's going to be a little more difficult. And, and so here's what I. I haven't encountered what you're saying a lot, uh, and you're bringing me back to uh, when I taught uh, this these these writing courses 
at what's called the College of Alameda, which is basically Oakland, California. It's a, it's an, it's a little island next to Oakland. And, and the, the College of Alameda is a, is a community college, which is a two-year college. 26% of the students are, are Black. That's a gigantic number. That's a gigantic number, you know. And um, a lot of the Black uh, uh, Filipina, Filipino, as well as um, Latinx students, a lot of them um, can be on probation and coming to college is the conditions of their of their um, release. So um, this 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 came up there. And um, I'm not sure, entirely sure I was successful. I was only there as an adjunct, uh, only only uh, two quarters, two semesters. But what I tried to do is say, okay, here is, this is an expository writing class, and um, I want you to have your voice in the world. But at the same time, I want you to learn the tools of academic writing. So that in the future, if you want to jettison them, you can. I'm a firm believer, uh, and I get this from Edward Said, who was my teacher at, at Columbia. I get this from uh, Ewa Ong, ONG, who is a, a Chinese Singaporean uh, Marxist professor at UC Berkeley. You know, and basically what what they said on two different occasions because they didn't even know each other. You know, is that you. So there's colored people in the room, Asians, Latinx, Black people in the room. You have to know the idiom and the history and the literature of your culture, but you also have to know everything else. <laughs> everything else. <laughs> so what happens when doing that in college means that, in effect, you, I don't want to say jettison, but you displace those other parts, right? We're just thinking about language here. Yeah. Uh, the the other language languages that, let's say, of your nurture. Um, yeah. How, because of ultimately, I mean, once they become habits, right? Like you, they they become habitual. They become sort of part of our dispositions in many ways, uh, even if some are deeply ingrained and don't necessarily go away all completely. But I guess I'm just. I'm wondering if there's a point of no return for some, uh, for some folks who enter the academy, and but instead of that, let me let me let me ask this another. Oh, no, you're right. You, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and Fanon says yeah. that yeah. There, when he when you talk in Black Skin White Mask, you know, right. when he says, you know, hallucinatory whitening, this thing in the unconscious that keeps mm -hmm. telling you that you must turn white or disappear, that 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 thing in the black unconscious that he talks about in the woman of color and the white man and the man of color and the, and the white woman, then he gets further into it in the Negro and psychopathology. That's gonna be, you're right, Asal, that is going to be bigger in your mind the more you're educated than the less you're educated. You're always going to have that, that, that the way David Marriott puts it, your own imago is going to be your your own image is going to be is going to come into your unconscious as something that is a threat to you and the world and something that you must destroy and protect the world against and the more educated you become the more intense that is going to be so i can't i can't i can address your question i can't i can't answer it because i, I yeah i just i just can't i just can't no it, yeah, i mean it, 
it's i mean it's, it sounds like what you're what you're saying is is uh it's a paradox that we yeah. we can certainly identify and explore perhaps it's, if we leave some room in that classroom i guess that's maybe that's what i'm really wondering about how does the room how does that room get made uh wider with uh say the ideas around blackness as social death um in a writing classroom where there is a standard that is uh an uh a, a standardized English that's expected to be learned so that that doesn't lead to just more black erasure, more black uh, a denial of black English. Does that make sense? Like, I guess I want to say there's, a, there's isn't there room for black English in the, in the courtroom <laughs> in, in the, in, in the, in the, uh, the, 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 what do you call it? Um, any, any other space, like any other legitimate space in the, in the, in the society today. And that this is the place that it begins, right? Well, there is and there isn't. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I mean, the, the Panthers and the Black Liberation Army created that space in the courtroom and they got more time for it. You know what I mean? It was just, I mean, yes. I mean, in, in other words, um, uh, America spelled with, and this is why we teach Asada Shakur. America spelled with three K's instead of a C. Uh, pig being used over and over again instead of police. You know the way in which she she lures uh, uh, poetry in Black English into the text and a, and a critique of of Lincoln. Yes, I'm I'm all I'm all for that. I I but I just want to come and and I hope that I produced I've helped to produce some space for that. I think the course at San Quentin was uh, really, really uh, exemplary of that because in their final project, they demanded that all the prisoners, as well as the, I mean, I, I freaked out because if you teach at San Quentin, the classroom is literally three stories underground, okay? <laughs> and you cannot walk two abreast going up the stairs, okay? Oh, and so yeah. talk about captivity. <laughs> and uh, they, 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 they put on um, one, uh, um, I can't remember this guy. He's out now. I, I communicate with him, but Chinese guy from a gang in in, in um, Oakland who had killed someone and uh, black, one of former Black Panther, and, and they got together. And they formed a little musical group, and and they actually made songs uh, which were highly uh, aggressive towards, <laughs> and they performed those songs to, to hey check this out to all the people who were in the, the junior college classes, as well as all the people who were in the general education classes trying to get a high school degree, and the words who were, who were there was like, oh, like okay, you know, <laughs> I'm not the teacher here, okay, don't, I, I leave at night, Jack, you know, don't, don't keep me here this shit, right, you know what I'm saying? And, so, and, then they took, and then they took the California District of Corrections to court. So yes, that came, that, that came out, but we also said to them, uh, you need this other skill, you know, you have to, so that you can reject it when you want to. Do Shane, do we have time for the for the last your, your last question? Yeah, yeah more time. whatever you want to do. Okay. I, I, so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna uh, a little bit longer of a question, but I I, I want to kind of share this story with the listeners and again encourage and, and uh, challenge them to to pick up this book and, and and read it for themselves. But here here here's the 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 story. So in the second chapter, you talk about being 11 years old, 
and, and, and lacking a critical race vocabulary. And at the age of 12, you felt shame. And, and you share this quote, I would not be black until the following year, 1968, when I turned 12, end quote. And you talk about how the shame wasn't shared by your neighbors and you connect this to the color of your skin. And there's a moment where you're lying on the living room floor at 11 and you imagine yourself in the future. And in this vision, you aren't shunned or rejected. And in this vision, you have power and there, there's people making confessions to you. And it feels to me like a, like a story of redemption yet kind of going with this, this theme that we've been discussing yet shortly after you're back in the present, nothing's changed. And, and you write this um, quote, the present would always be waiting for me at the end of the, that summer, sixth grade would be no different than the slow acid drip of years gone by another year, seeing myself through the eyes of others, end quote. Right after this, sorry, again, long, but I was fascinated by this. Right after this, you talk about your teacher recommending that you repeat fifth grade. But what's interesting is your fourth grade teacher, that teacher said you could skip fifth grade. <laughs> so here there's there's tension, right? And, and to me, it, it's like you share this glimpse of progress and it may be a better future, but then there's immediate stagnation with like your teacher's response um, saying maybe you should retake fifth grade. So this felt like a critical moment to me as a reader. And, and I really began to wonder if this became that 11, that 11 year old you on the floor, imagining this future, if this became a recurring vision for you, or was it at this point at 11 where you felt social cultural tension and realized that this was a reality and that this reality would, would never change that, that there, there would be no quote, like better future. Did the vision stop at that moment? And, and, and I'm again, maybe interested because I'm an educator in you placing these stories kind of back to back this 11 year old you on the floor with this, this fifth grade moment in the classroom, looking back now, what kind of role, if any, did education in that, that space uh, help shape and inform how you saw yourself and, and how you saw your, your own future? Yeah. Um, I think that I think we can think of the, think of how the classroom changed me. Uh, if we, if we um, impose uh, a distended calculus on the word classroom so that the classroom suddenly became the, the world, you know, and, and I was really, really, and I was always very attentive uh, because I was the oldest and I went everywhere with my parents, they were educators and, and I went through their education with them as opposed to my little brother who was born when they were successful. I saw everything that they dealt with, you know, and um, the classroom, then became the world in the sense that uh, they began to host a lot of, of uh, meetings for 20 to sometimes 50 people who were involved in uh, LBJ's Great Society program. And one of the things that, that I became uh, aware of, uh, you know, first intuitively at 11 and then more 
concretely at 12. And then I had a way of thinking about it when we when when we went to Chicago and Detroit and Berkeley, the age of 13 and 14, was that there's another there's another way of thinking about what I'm going through than the way that my parents have taught me to think about it. You know, keep your nose clean, keep your head down, getting back to a, a, a sow's intervention. Don't use the word ain't. Uh, don't go around singing chubby checkers and slide the family stone and doing the twist that, you know, and the, and the boogaloo, because that will just put you in a space where you're, where their, their a prior perception of you as someone who is not intelligent will be confirmed. Uh, and above all, don't get angry. Well, that's a hard one because I'm still angry. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, I nurture grudges the way some people nurture babies, you know. I, mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I can name all the white people I hate going back to 1967, okay? Sometimes, sometimes I know their last names, okay? <laughs> and, and, and my writing started with poetry, but then in, in, in third grade, but because uh, my mother made me memorize English poetry. Uh, long English poetry. But by the time I got to sixth grade, which is the period that you're talking about, 1968, I was actually uh, writing horror stories about all the things that would happen to my white teachers. Um, and so why is that? Well, I became aware of political formations of Black people who were responding to what I was going through in ways that they were very different than what I was told to respond to. They were responding with guns. They were responding with demonstrations. They were responding with expletives. They were responding with uh, Emory Douglas's cartoons in the Black Panther Party about pigs, real pigs, with police caps on being stabbed to death. Um, they were responding with an analysis of where they are in Oakland or Chicago or Detroit as being unethical and exemplary of the United States being unethical, you know, and so, and so, the the kind of process I've been talking about from the beginning, where um, where the space is given for this person who actually has no prior plenitude and no future to express that that's that that alone. I've had black students tell me that that alone makes them feel good, just the ability to say that as opposed to having to be forced into a structural adjustment of their suffering into how it looks like other people's. That alone, uh, the reason I didn't totally liberate me is because now I recognize my parents could not af probably afford to get there. What I will give them credit for is that uh, when they put a great society program together or had a meeting, they made sure that there were white, white liberals from the university, uh, uh, liberal thinking uh, 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 business people, as well as the Black Power people from northern Minneapolis and the newly formed American Indian Movement um, organization, which had just started uh, 20 blocks from our house in uh, South Minneapolis. They made sure that all those people were in the same room as emotionally as someone full of rage and shame and hatred. I gravitated more towards the people who were calling into question America's existence, as opposed to the other people in the room who were calling into question Americans' practices. And so 
so my classroom became a kind of world. Um, and these people left broadsides. There was a lot, you know, we don't, we don't kind of remember this now, but there were over 600 alternative newspapers from the radical left published then. Uh, by the time we get to 1967, 10 years later, um, um, Hoover and the next guy, Hoover died in 72, they, they have actually attacked the press, like the Berkeley Barb and all those, so that now they're only about 63. You know, but but there was anti-American revolutionary literature falling like leaves from the trees, and all you had to do was pick it up and read it, and I did. That reminds me that access to such uh, such um, critiques of this the of American society, politics, etc., sounds like a, they. And I'm gonna cast my own vision on this, the utopian version of what we get today in social media, which is yeah. bubbles of junk of, you know, where it's just circuit with, or the worst possible ways in which, um, and I'm gonna put scare quotes on this, mere opinion circulates as facts or as yeah. researched ideas. And I'm not, I'm trying not to be elitist about this and say all only, you know, I'm not, I don't mean that only good ideas and things come out of the universities and academia. And that's certainly not so, but it certainly is true, at least in my, my view that in social media today, it's, it kind of uh, trades a lot in very uninformed, very yeah. un, un, uh, uh, unreflective sort of opinions that then become like seen as fact. Um, um, and it's very, and most of them it feels like are, uh, do the other version of what you're describing, which is not healthy critique or offering alternatives, but something else. Um, I don't know what that is, and but masquerading as critique. But, but Shane, I'm a little worried that I, I kind of in my old age forgot the first part of your question. Could you could you bring me back to that? Whatever yeah, you want. So, so the first, the first that that first. I guess one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to share a little bit about this because if I did my research right, and I think it's been reaffirmed from here, but your dad was a university professor, so so you had access to maybe a different world or connection to education and higher education that that was really interesting. But hearing you, it's like yes, you had access to that world, but you were drawn to the world as the classroom, right? And, and kind of maybe pushing and resisting against societal structures and systems of, of quote unquote education. But the first part of the question was really thinking through that 11 year old you uh, on the floor and, and having this vision um, where it seems like things have changed, right? Where, where you were accepted, where you did have more power, where there was this moment of, of, redemption in, 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 in some ways. Oh, I see what you're saying. So yes, I, yes, I was yes, trying to think yes, in that, yeah. that 11 yeah. year old you was that in, in that moment, like did those vision, did that vision reoccur? Did it happen again? Or was there a, a shift from like 11 to 12 where you realize like this will never be reality or this will never be my reality? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, a black family is is a very complicated um, complex, just like any, any other family. And what, what makes ours complicated is that, um, you know, my father was a democratic liberal and vice president and one of the deans and then a vice president, my mother. And he also, she was a psychologist and, you know, but, Black people, and I, I can only imagine 
that it's true for families of other 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 colored families but black black families especially the middle class have a completely schizophrenic way of speaking um and so that the way in which they speak in public is not how they, they speak at, at home um and and that i kind of got the, the section that you're talking about shane i kind of intimated that at, right before then with my mother uh sticking voodoo dolls uh, pins and voodoo dolls which which she made of, of, of her of her co-workers or I, I could have said more if i hadn't had to cut off thirty thousand words you know, <laughs> my, my father uh talking a lot about his father who was a, a, a radical, not a Marxist. He was just a, a guy who owned a few little, tiny little businesses. And he used all that to start the first NAACP chapter in his parish, which was a hell of a place to start it, because it's right where 12 Years a Slave was made. A lot of lynchings going on. He had a lot of Klan activity against him. Uh, but he threw all his weight into political activism. Uh, I, you know, I've read his papers at Tulane University. Quite, you know, and and so and so that talk was going on, um, public grieving for, with my parents for Mark, for the death of Malcolm of Martin Luther King, private grieving, private grieving for the murder of Malcolm X. You know, and this is and and so I'm getting all these these mixed messages, and I'm uh, and 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 then sixty seven sixty eight happened, you know. And so, um, had I been, uh, you're right, had I been the son of physicians who are black, um, this, the, the third black family to move into our neighborhood and living down by the lake, for example, none of this would have happened. None of this. You know, I, I, I might just be in jail for having done something, because uh, I was fighting all the time physically, you know, with people. Um, but what what I was able to do, or synapses, you know, were able to connect between what was happening with me and what was happening in the world because I was exposed to people who were setting universities alight, you know. Um, now, I wanted to please my parents. I think every kid does. I I I pretend that I don't now, but I think it's still probably true, you know. And uh, my father had spent um, a good two or three years uh, converting to Catholicism uh, to marry my mother, who was of higher class than him. Um, we went to a Catholic church. Uh, I, I was in, kind of seduced by the uh, ritualistic, you know, Catholics really aren't Christians. They're kind of pagans in Christian clothing. I mean, because there's so much... <laughs> Ritual, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but uh, so I wanted I, that was all I liked it, but but I also had this break, and the break came internally, and the break and it and it collaborated historically with an external break, you know, I mean the, the one of the most pleasurable moments this is going to sound weird, but one of the ple most pleasurable moments I had was in 1968, around April seventh or eighth, I'm looking at the television and I see Bobby Seale being asked a question about the murder that happened a few days ago of, of, of Martin Luther King. And he goes like this, Martin Luther King, poor boy, 
he just exhausted a tactic or something like that, you know? And it was so fucking irreverent. And so, you know, I mean, Martin Luther King was like a, a high priest in our house, you know? And when he goes, Martin Luther King, poor boy, just exhausted this, this nonviolence, you know, and now we're gonna get down, you know? I was like, hell yeah. I mean, I didn't even know why, hell yeah. You know, it's just calling him poor boy, like he's a misguided, you know, miscreant or something, you know? And then and saying that, that he exhausted a, a tactic that was actually not workable and that we're going to get down with some guns. I mean, the first thing I did when we went on sabbatical was to find the Black Panther office and go to their after school school programs. <laughs> yeah. Shane, did, did I answer? I want to know if I answered Shane's question at all. Yeah, yeah, you, you sure did. Yeah, I, I just was, I was reading that and I was thinking about all the work that all the activist and organizing work that you have also done since that 11 year old you you know and i was just like i was trying to put all these different stages and aspects of your life together and for whatever reason that story really stood out to me and and and, and made me ask kind of the, these questions about reality and 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 yeah i was just really interested in, in hearing that I want to say one thing. One thing. I, you're right, Shane. The thing is, I hate to see people suffer where, wherever I'm at. You know, so it's not even a planned. It's like a. It's like a Pavlovian response. You know, if I see people suffering, I'm going to jump into the cause of of what whatever is happening uh, with with and find. You know, like I, if I'm in Guatemala for a month trying to learn, I'm going to find the people who suffered under the the last military junta. And hang out with them and, and 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 talk with them. You know, if I'm in South Africa, I'm going to find the people in squatter camps, and and, and I'm not going to hang out with the American expatriates. You know, um, it doesn't mean that it's been. Uh, and so that has always led me back to this is the essential work, even though I've left a lot of money on the table. But it doesn't mean that 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 I haven't thought, what the hell am I doing? You know, uh, the the eight years I spent as a stockbroker. You know, in the evenings, I was going to the Mozambique uh, support networks. I was teaching creative writing. I was doing this work for the Palestinian Intifada. Uh, but at the same time, in the daytime, I was going to Merrill Lynch, uh, selling stocks and bonds and limited partnerships. Uh, there, you can't be in America and not wish that you were that you're an American. You, you know, anyone who says that is just lying to themselves. And so now I found compensatory gestures to help me deal with that 11 year old boy who wanted to be like, I own a Lucid now, which is a high end luxury car, okay? <laughs> Electric, you know? So I could say I've got the baddest luxury car on the planet, but I'm not polluting anything, okay? So yeah. <laughs> I, you know, to me in that, in, in those, in that passage that Shane uh, uh, cited from the from your book, it sounded like the origins of Afro pessimism. I mean, it, in the way that you described it in the first half of the of the podcast and in the book, of course. But I'm just thinking, it sounds like even at that young age, you're formulating. I, again, I know this is a your constructed narrative of this, but it feels like that you're forming this critique or this idea of critiquing of the critiques, if you will, <laughs> the meta. Um, uh, as early as as uh, as twelve years old, uh, just through under just through sitting or lying uh, with the contradictions in your life. Yeah, I I I have to say that um, I'm, I would I would like to I I want I want to 
make sure that I answered Shane, Shane's all Shane's question. That was a, a long one, but but I, I'm just gonna give myself some props here. Okay, I was a very smart twelve year old. <laughs> okay, I was reading Freud. Didn't understand a word. Of it, okay, I I read in and out of B. F. Skinner. I read in and out of Fernand. Okay, I read anything that was on my parents' bookshelf. You know, because I wanted to be. I actually had my mother make business cards for me that said that my profession was Mr. Know-it-all. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but, but that wasn't just my doing. Okay. They, they really, really, they, they poured this, this rigor into me uh, forcibly in a way that they didn't any of their other children. So, mm. you know, I worked, I'd like to take all the credit for my intellect. I can't. Okay, but before we move, I want to be sure because I, I I know I go tangentially. Did Shane? Did I answer your, your question? Uh, yeah, you did. Thank you. Thank you so much for 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 sharing and responding to that. Well, I, I think that we only uh, have uh, we only uh, have four questions, and we have gone uh, a little just a little bit over. I think we started a little bit later, but uh, I got to say, um, uh, Frank, that thank you so much for your uh your time and your generosity and the book and this the legacy of your work that we all get to continue to uh to dip into and uh and use in our lives so thank you so much for that and yeah, thank you it's so been much, a, yeah really it's been a really it. great conversation i've had i was like i literally have like uh, i can think of like five or six other questions that i really wanted to talk about or ask you based on your responses but i can't well we can't now <laughs> but but so it was really rich for me the discussion was very rich Yes, well, thank, thank you, you thank you so much, Frank.